Hey, it's so good to be here with you today. If you're the type that likes following an actual Bible, Acts chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a second. If not, I've created some really easy to follow along with slides uh, that will make it incredibly easy. It's so good uh, to, to be here with uh, what is now my Kenmore family. Uh, it's my first time. And, uh, and, of course, there wasn't much. You guys just started in 2019, and then something sort of bad happened. And yet, look. Look at what God's done in just, uh, just under two years. It's a brilliant. It's a testimony to the leadership. It's a testimony to the team. It's a testimony to you. Uh, and, and it's a testimony to what, what God has in store uh, for you guys. And so for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor who happens to have his rabbi training as well. So my stuff does tend to come from that bent. On, on your way out today... At the back there, we have a table set up with all of our, not all of it, the new stuff I've done in the last three years, um, is back there in USBs, in audio and video. And if you're wondering, why would you carry that around with you? The reason is, is because we make a lot of money from it. And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So for well over a decade, 100% of the profit we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have three homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Yang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of the sex industry, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can do our part to help break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. Okay? So that's where that's our chosen charities and mission because Jesus had a lot to say about how people with resource should treat people without it, right? And so that's what we do with that back there. Um, just to give you a couple of highlights, um, I, I just finished a series on the book of Revelation. Um, the reason is, is because I was so embarrassed by the stuff I was seeing Christians put on the internet about it. So I was just like, no, 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 no. So we're going to, I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to criticize them. I'm definitely not going to go on the internet with them. I'm just going to teach through it. And there you go. So that's back there. I also finished a series on Christology and the nature of Christ. That if God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus, if God has always been like Jesus, what implications does that have for scripture and liberty and love and ethics and, and struggle and grief and wrath? And judgment, and so all that's back there. You can avail yourself of it. Um, myself and Robin will be back there to help you. And, uh, and remember, just 100% of that goes to the poor. One other thing before we get started, um, I'd like to give you an authentic invitation back to tonight. Um, I always, when I come to a church, I always put something very special aside for the evening meeting so I can invite the people in the morning um, back. And so, uh, and it's a short service, so come on back tonight. Um, I promise you it'll change your life. Um, if it doesn't, um, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, I'll reimburse you whatever it costs to come, right? So whatever the ticket is, I don't know what, it, I don't know what, it's my first time here, I don't know what they charge you to come at night. So whatever that is, it's a really risk-free thing. I would just say check with the powers that be that, to make sure there's still seats given restrictions, okay? Because we want to be um, good citizens. All right, Acts chapter 8, we're going to get there um, in just a second. I want to start with a story. And, um, and let's see where this takes us, because my job is to open the Bible today. And I take that really seriously. Anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask a couple questions. Like, one, what happened? Two, more importantly, what's happening in us right now because of what happened? And so there's this weird story in Acts 8 that is illustrated really well in a true story that a friend of mine from rural Australia in the outback uh, told me from, from the 1980s. So in the 1980s, uh, an American tourist came to Australia. Now, Americans love Australian culture, largely because of Crocodile Dundee and, and for Outback Steakhouse. And so when Americans come to Australia for the first time, they always want to see the outback, right? And I try to tell them, 
you, you don't want to see the outback. There, there's nothing there. Just fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town. That is it for 3,000 miles. Uh, but they, they don't listen. They always want to do it. And the, the one thing that really Americans can't get their head around is the size of Australian properties, right? So my pastor is an old cattleman. Um, he's in his 80s now. But when he was a young man, he ran a cattle property. His cattle property was 70 miles long by 30 miles why? Now, to, to, to an American, that is a state. That is the state of Connecticut, right? We don't have any kind of anything like that. Bill Gates just became the largest private landowner in American history. He bought a million acres for himself, right? A million acres for himself. Australians are like, Psh, backyard, right? Because their properties are enormous. And so the American goes out to this guy's cattle property, and he can't get his head around one thing. So he asked the Australian farmer, um, how do you keep the cows from running away? The farmer said, what? He says, well, think about it. Like, you got this sprawling thing. What, what happens if the cow just says, I'm going over there? You can't find him. But what, he'll die or you'll at least lose money? Or what, How do you keep the cows from running away without fencing up your whole property? And, and the farmer said, well, you can't fence up a property this size. It's too expensive. It would take a congressional act to build your wall. You can't do that, right? What, what you do is you have a surveyor come in and you dig strategic wells and create predictable water sources. And once you have specific wells and specific paddocks, the cows learn where the water is and they will never vary too far from that water or they'll die. And the Australian farmer said to the American tourist, Mate, mate, if you got the right wells, you don't need all those fences. Which leads me to Jesus. So Jesus comes onto the scene in the most fence-based paradigm of ministry maybe ever. 613 rules. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's clean? Who's unclean? Jesus shows up and changes the whole thing to two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you would want to be treated. That followers of Jesus never, ever, 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 can I be clear, ever, obsess about one verse we can find in the Bible. We obsess about fulfilling Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because Jesus is not someone to believe in. Jesus is someone to fundamentally shift the way we see our whole world. That Christianity is an intentional, authentic effort to see the world how Jesus saw the world, to see God. God, how Jesus saw God, and to apply Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture. And the way Jesus applied Scripture was he never obsessed about one verse someone approached him with. He always obsessed with something else, which is how do I treat them as I would want to be treated? I want to fulfill Scripture instead of being right about it. I know you found a verse that says you should stone adulterers, but we're not going to do that because God loves people more than the rules, and we're going to treat her as we would want to be treated, right? So Jesus taught us to fulfill scripture, not just be right about one verse, which leads me to the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is about a group of people who took Jesus seriously. And essentially, here's the entire first nine chapters of the book of Acts in 15 seconds. It's a group of people. It's a group of people who had a massive encounter with the Holy Spirit. And then they started doing amazing things. And then they got persecuted. And then they overcame it and did more amazing things. And then they got persecuted. Then they overcame it, did more amazing things. And then they got persecuted. And then they did more amazing things. And then their friend named Stephen gets murdered. Now, when their friend gets murdered, 
Even the most ardent follower of Jesus is like, we're taking our show on the road until y'all chill out. And so they end up in Samaria and they do amazing things. And then people want to buy the abilities. Like it's unbelievable. And then there's this ridiculously weird story in Acts chapter 8 about an encounter between a follower of Jesus named Philip and a nameless man just simply called the Ethiopian eunuch. And here's the thing, right? Bible study 101 is always read the Bible in context. Here's the problem. What if there's no context? This story has nothing to do with anything before it and nothing to do with anything after it. It's just thrown in there like it's Luke knew that this story is so important. You couldn't leave it out, but you don't really know where it goes. And so he put it in there. And I want us to wrestle with this by looking at what happened and then looking at what's happening in us right now because of what happened. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. If you're following the actual Bible, if not, here comes the slide. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, so he rose and he went down there. And, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Let's just stop right there. Can we admit already this story's weird, right? You have an Ethiopian eunuch who rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. According to Google Maps, that's 3,853 kilometers. In, in Australian terms, that's riding a horse from Melbourne to Mount Isa, turning right and going to Townsville. That is a long way. This guy rides a horse 3,853 kilometers, which probably explains why he is a eunuch. Now, <laughs> it leads to all kinds of questions like, was there, not a, was there not a spot halfway, you know, that you could have met with God, like maybe Mount Sinai, which is a pretty holy place? No. He rides all the way to Jerusalem, which leads to all kinds of questions like, why would a guy ride a horse for 3,853 kilometers to a place that doesn't accept him? He doesn't speak the language, and he's clutching the scroll of a prophet he can't possibly understand. That's strange. And then the story gets stranger. Keep going. Next slide. So, so the Spirit of God says to Philip, well, go over and join him on his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asked him, do you even understand what you're reading? And the eunuch sort of owns up to it. He's like, well, no, how can I unless... Someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And so he was reading the scripture uh, that he was reading was this. Like a lamb, like a sheep that he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. So the eunuch says to Philip, well, about who can I ask you does this prophet talk about? Is it about himself or someone? Like his understanding of theology is so elemental. He doesn't even know Isaiah's talking about somebody else. He's like, can you tell me? He's talking about a God that does not exist above the broken narrative, but rather indwells in the broken narrative in order to make the broken narrative a better story, even if the broken narrative hurts him. Like, this is a God worth thinking about, right? So watch what happens. Next slide. So Philip opens his mouth and, beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch says, well, look, here's some water. Is there anything preventing me from being baptized? Now, let's stop, and I want, I want to paint this picture because this has everything to do with Kenmore Church, okay? So an outsider asks a Jesus person, hey, I want to be a part of what God is doing in Christ in the world, but you're the Jesus expert, not me. Is there any reason you can think of that I would be disqualified from being a part of what Jesus is up to? 
And, and what Zelvin did earlier was he handed you these, uh, these movie ticket things. And he says, I want you to invite people who don't go to church anywhere to come and be a part of the thing. And, and that's all, that's great, and we should do that. But we should, probably should think about before that happens, what if they turn up? And, and if, what if an unchurched person turns up and then gets moved and says, hey, I'd like to be a part of what God is doing in this Jesus person, but I don't know much about it. You're the Jesus experts. Can you think of any reason why I can't be a part? Is there anything about my life, anything about my race, anything about the color of my skin, anything about the way I think? Is there anything about me that Jesus would disqualify me? And they're wondering, can I Belong. This is the same question that people ask us now. It's just in different words. The Ethiopian eunuch goes, I want, I want in on this Jesus thing unless you can think of a reason I can't. And you're the Jesus expert, not me. I don't know, right? Watch what happens. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down to the water and Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. And so then they came up out of the water. And the Spirit of the Lord carried him away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. What an odd, like, that's just frankly strange, which, which leads me to all kinds of questions. And if I have questions, that means you have questions. So I'm going to let you in on the questions I ask, and they might be the same questions you might be asking, like, is there too much information in this passage? Like, do we really need to know he's a eunuch? And if you're a eunuch, do you want the world knowing you're a eunuch? Five times, Luke's like, hey, by the way, this guy's a eunuch. If I haven't mentioned this yet, this guy's, it's really important that you understand this guy's a eunuch. If, you, if you're the eunuch, do you want everybody knowing that? I can see the eunuch confronting Luke in heaven right now. Like, really, bro? Really? You put that in the Bible? You know Willard can't read over that. He's going to make a point out of that. Everybody's going to know I'm missing part of my anatomy. Flip, right? Is, it, is that really, is that really important? And, and, and why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? A place where he didn't speak the language? It would have been a different God. He doesn't, he's not really accepted. And why the scroll of Isaiah? Like, out of all the scrolls he could have been reading, why is he picking a prophet that is specifically calling out corrupt systems of political power and how they treat the most vulnerable? Why that? Especially considering he doesn't understand the language. Like, what's going on there? And, and next slide. Is there any reason why he can't be baptized? And that's the critical thing I want us to wrestle with. This outsider... Ask a Jesus person, the way Jesus saw the world, the way Jesus saw God, and the way Jesus applied scripture, can you think of any reason I can't be baptized? Because what this passage is going to make us wrestle with today is are we going to be a fence-based place or a well-based place? Because here's the problem with the passage. There was a reason that he would have been excluded. So when he asked Philip, hey, I want in, can you think of any reason? The problem is... There was a reason, and the problem with that reason is it's in the Bible. Let me show it to you. Next slide, Deuteronomy 23. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter into the assembly of the Lord. God doesn't accept eunuchs. It's in the Bible. We have a verse for this. We should put it on a pamphlet somewhere. God doesn't Hey, I appreciate your heart, and I know you want to be a part of what God is doing in Christ. Unfortunately, there's this one rule that disqualifies you. Unfortunately, you're a eunuch, right? And while Moses is, you know, creating fences, he just gets on a roll. And no one born of a forbidden marriage or any of their descendants may enter in the assembly, Lord, not even 10 generations from now. I was born in 1976, and in my lifetime, I heard a youth pastor use that verse 
to try to convince teenagers to avoid premarital relationships, the idea was, is if you mess up and get them pregnant, the kid would never be welcome in heaven. Now, that's Homer Simpson logic. That's one. Those people left the church, and then the church said, see, they rejected Jesus. No, they did not reject Jesus. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them, and some images of Jesus, frankly, should be rejected. Right? And no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants can enter the assembly of the Lord, not even ten generations from now. In the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23, there's more fences than in Jesus' entire ministry. No eunuchs. Nobody born from suspicious marriages and unions, no Moabites, and no Ammonites. And if you check Jesus' genealogy, his very presence confronts this. Like Jesus is 128th Moabite because of Ruth, right? He, he's also, there were certain, I don't know, questions around the circumstances revolving around his birth, right? And so Jesus' presence himself is pretty confronting to this, which leads to this question. Why Isaiah? Out of all the prophets, well, on the same scroll that he was reading from is Isaiah 56, which says this. Next slide. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me. And let no eunuch complain I'm only a dry tree. For, for this is what the Lord says to, to, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and who hold fast to my covenant. To them I'll give a name within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. Now, if you don't ever hear anything else I say, I want you to hear me say this. If you want to ruin the Bible, and please don't, because I love it. If you want to ruin the Bible, here's all you got to do. Read it statically. The Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. In Deuteronomy 23, it says no eunuchs and no foreigners. Isaiah 56, it says, upon further review, I, I think God's nicer than we thought. And, um, and, you know, foreigners and eunuchs who want in, as if God would reject anybody who wants him. That doesn't make any sense. By Matthew 19, Jesus said some people are born eunuchs because of God. And by Acts 8, there's this radical encounter between a foreigner eunuch and a follower of Jesus. And he says, hey, Jesus expert, how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, how Jesus applied scripture. Can you think of any reason why I can't be a part? And keep in mind, I'm a foreigner eunuch. <laughs> and, I've got, and, and Philip's got this choice. He can be right about Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And if he was going to do that, he should have said, um, unfortunately, you got to go home. Or he could be right about Isaiah 56. Or he could do something more profound than any of that. And instead of being right, he can choose to fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because that's how Jesus taught us to apply Scripture. And in Isaiah 56, it says, not only will you not be, not only will you not be excluded, you'll be included. Not only that, I'm not going to put an asterisk by your name like you're sort of an outcast. You're going to have a name better than the ones who thought they were in in the first place. This is, can you see why a foreigner eunuch might be interested in Isaiah? A, a prophet saying God actually loves people who they thought were excluded? Let, let's keep going. Next, I'll give them an everlasting name. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, minister to the Lord, and love and keep the Sabbath and hold fast to his covenant. Like in, in other words, foreigners and eunuchs that want it, they're in, right? Next slide. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Yeah, what, even if they're Moabites? Yes, all. Sidonites? All. Amalekites? All. The Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Now, 
if you're, a, if you're a linear learner instead of a narrative learner, you're already starting to get lost. Now, if you're a narrative learner, you just love that, right? But if you're a linear learner, I did this for you. Next slide. So there's two characters in this story. <laughs> there's an Ethiopian eunuch who wants in. The problem is there's a rule that disqualifies him. Then you have Philip, who's one of the original 12 from a devoutly orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by all 613 fences. And then he met Jesus, who taught him to apply scripture differently by fulfilling it instead of being right about it. And by the way, this story has a whole heaping load of fruit to it. Next slide. Today, two-thirds of Ethiopia identify as Christ followers. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. People don't tend to move there. In other words, the Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this one eunuch. In other words, you never know how far-reaching being brave enough to fulfill Scripture instead of being right about the one fence. Like, think about it. If Philip would have said, I know you want in, but unfortunately there's this one verse that disqualifies you, we'd be spending $10 billion today trying to evangelize a country that's already evangelized because somebody, namely a follower of Jesus named Philip, was brave enough to fulfill Scripture instead of being right about the one verse he knew. How much more for us at Kenmore? What would, what would Kenmore Church's impact be in our community if we were a well-based place and died to our fence-based thinking? What would happen? You never know how surprised we'd be with the far-reaching impacts of treating others as we would want to be treated. And by the way, that's the whole point of the book of Acts. How many times in the book of Acts do you see people being surprised by God acting outside of the fence? Like, remember there's this one time? Peter was preaching, and it says God filled the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. And it surprised everybody, including Peter, right? And remember, the, the, the followers of Jesus were surprised. They were like, hey, Peter, explain yourself, bro. God doesn't fill Gentiles. And remember Peter's response? He's like, I know, I know. That's what I was taught my whole life too. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with what I obviously God doing? Now, that is my best effort at explaining what happened. Now, let's ask a better question. What's happening in us right now because of what happened? See, if I say something obvious, it's frustrating if we don't have language to define it because words matter less than how we picture those words working, right? So if I was to say, hey, at Kenmore Church, we are a well-based place, not a fence-based place. It just everything inside your spirit goes, yeah, right? Like, shoot, man. Like everything in... Everything inside of you sort of goes, yeah, nobody would go, no. We need to make it harder, right? But the problem is if we don't have language, um, it sort of gets frustrating. So let's put some language around this. Next slide. Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus asks, are you thirsty? So, so let's, let's, keep, let, let's keep our primary imagination. A fence-based place obsesses on who is worthy. A well-based place obsesses on who wants it, who is thirsty. See, Jesus had this incredible way of seeing God. Here's what he believed. And I wish I could believe it to the level he did, and I'm working on it, okay? Jesus believed if somebody wanted it, that he could trust God to do all the convicting and all the changing in their life. And Jesus was just there to facilitate and celebrate their next yes. What a profound way to see God. Remember there's this one time? Jesus was preaching to 5,000 people, and everybody left. Everyone. That is 
horrible rejection. Everyone. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And remember what the disciples say? They don't say, absolutely not. We totally accept what you're saying. Remember what they said? They said, where else would we go? <laughs> like, like, we don't get what you're saying either, but we ain't got nowhere else to be, bro. But here's the thing. We don't want to be Johnny Raincloud here, but nobody understood what you were talking about. And remember Jesus' response? He says, oh, if the Father hasn't prepared their heart to hear what I was saying, who am I to try to convince them? <laughs> like that. That. In other words, Jesus had this profound trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, I'm only here to cooperate with what I see God doing and never manipulating it. I want to facilitate and celebrate their next yes. Why? Because well-based places obsess on who wants it, not who's worth it. Fence-based places obsess on who is worthy. A well-based place obsesses on who is thirsty. Let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses on sinning less. A well-based place obsesses on loving more. And by loving more, we will automatically sin less. Let's say it this way. A fence-based place lives with the obsession of everything has to be fixed. So bring your broken story to me. And I'll apply my infinite wisdom on the knowledge of good and evil. Sounds like a serpent talking, doesn't it? Bring me what's wrong with you. I'll apply my infinite knowledge on the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll fix your life. That's not, that's not a well-based place. A well-based place lives with the mantra, nothing has to be hidden. And, and what we could do is if we can create a situation where people can truly come shame-free and be honest and bring all their stuff into the light, that we can trust God to do all the convicting and all the changing by facilitating and celebrating their next yes. Right? Let's, let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses on who is worthy, a well-based place on who is thirsty, a fence-based place on sinning less, a well-based place on loving more, a fence-based place on everything has to be fixed, a well-based place on nothing has to be hidden. It seems to me that the enemy of a Christ-centered community is when we lose our thirst, our want to, our desire, our passion to keep saying our next yes. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Uh, when we lose our thirst, we lose our teachability. Like the, the root word for disciple in Hebrew and Greek is student, one who is teachable. This is when we don't sort of, if, if we shut down conversations instead of opening them up. If we start with, if I hadn't thought of it, it can't possibly, what do, you, what do you mean? Like whoever the smartest person in this room is when it comes to God, we haven't even scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is. We have an eternity of expiration and the point of that is to be teachable. I, I would say a lack of thirst is when we lose our humility. Like followers of Jesus always understand that their freedoms are best expressed and experienced when it's submitted to the higher moral ethic of love. All the temptations of Jesus on the cross was use your freedom and your power to violate love. And even in great stress, he would never do that. Like, like Jesus taught us to see the world this way, that followers of Christ always prefer the most vulnerable. Followers of Christ always prefer the poor and the afflicted. Followers of Christ always submit our freedom to the one who has a weaker conscience. That's an obvious way Jesus saw the world. And thirsty people can do that because they realize God is at work in them. And God's at work in me. And God's at work in you. And God's at work in them. And the whole thing's going somewhere beautiful if we just keep saying our next yes. I'd say a lack of thirst is a lack of responsibility. Like, like in, in the Genesis story, even before sin entered the story, meaning was attained by navigating being responsible for our world. This is why when sin enters the story, everybody starts blaming. I would say it one other way. A thirsty culture is a passionate culture. When we lose our thirst, we get ambivalent. We sort of just 
sit on our butt and wait to go to heaven when we die. This is the problem with a fence-based mentality. A fence-based mentality, here's a fence-based mentality. It obsesses with conversion. This is what that looks like. Okay, believe these things, say these prayers, do these rituals, fence, 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 and then what happens is you get to be like us, right? And then people do that, and they go, now what? And we go, well, you're, well, we just wait to go to heaven. Well, that's boring. Look, if our Christianity is simply sitting on our butt waiting to go to heaven when we die, that is frankly boring, unless you're 107. If you're 107, you can wait to go to heaven when you die. It's coming soon. But here's the thing, right? If you woke up today and you're not 107, that means you woke up today with infinite possibilities to partner with Jesus to make our world a better place. So let's, let's state it in the positive. A thirsty culture is a teachable culture, a humble culture, a responsible culture, and a culture passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world. Now think about that. If somebody who's never heard of church said to you, what is church? What is that? What are y'all, what are y'all, what, what is it all about? Instead of, well, we want to believe something to go somewhere else. What if it was, uh, church is a group of people who are intentionally and authentically trying to see the world how Jesus saw the world, see God how Jesus saw God, and apply scripture how Jesus applied scripture. And what that does is that creates a culture of teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate people about the infinite possibilities to do good in their world. Well, you can call that whatever you want. That's essential. That is necessary. That is that, that is a, a, a main idea to make our world a better place. Let, let's, let's actually put some more language around this so that, you know, we have plenty of language. Next slide. The overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. Love God, treat others as you would want to be treated. By Acts 15, they had dumbed it down to four. Now think about this, right? We could talk about the impact of Christ over 2,000 years for a long time. Let's just think about it for the first 10 years. In 10 years, Jesus, Jesus' message was so compelling. How he saw the world, how he saw God, how he applied scripture was so compelling that they moved 613 fences to four with the goal of getting to two. That is a massive, massive impact. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Are we gravitating to the center Regardless of the fencing. Like, I'm assuming that most of you here today are fully devoted followers of Jesus. Right? And if you're not, I'm going to urge you to say your next yes. Whatever that next yes may be, we're here to facilitate and celebrate that. But for fully devoted followers of Jesus, I want us to ask the question, do we actually need the fence if we're heading towards the center anyway? Like, let, me, let me give you an example. Like, there's a more profound reason to trust Jesus than fear of punishment or expectation of reward. Correct? Right? Like, let me say it another way. If heaven and hell were not the issue, is Jesus still worth following? Okay, that was pretty slow. Okay, so if heaven and hell were not the issue, is Jesus still worth following? Yeah, that's a pretty resounding yes, right? Why? Because if you imagine if, if you face Jesus one day and Jesus goes, I'm just curious, why did you follow me? If your only answer is, well, I'd hate to go to hell, that's, that's pretty insulting to Jesus. That'd be like your wife asking you, why'd you marry me? And your only answer is, well, the other chick was ugly. You know, option B sort of stunk, right? No, we, like there's a, there's a more profound reason to choose Jesus and to choose life, right? Like, give me an example, okay? I don't know if I'm being clear about this. Let me give me an example. Here's a great fence. I mean, I mean, not a good fence, a great fence. Don't kill each other. That's in the Bible, okay? Now, is that, that's a keeper, right? Like, you got to have people's life protected, right? Don't kill each other. Now, here's the thing, right? 
I would bet a pretty good chunk of change that no one in this room killed anybody this week. Okay? Well, I don't know all of your stories from life. I'm, who knows what you... But this week, I'm pretty confident, right? No one in this room killed anybody this week, right? I would also bet that the reason you didn't is not because the Bible says. It's because you're not a killer. Like, if you still need the Bible to tell you don't kill, you might have missed the whole point, right? Here's another good one, right? right? Don't, don't take each other's things. Awesome. Your life and your stuff need to be protected, right? And again, I would bet no one in here stole anything this week. I would also bet that the reason is not because the Bible says. It's because you're not a thief, right? There's a more profound reason not to steal than there's this rule, you know? Huh? Oh, here's a good one, right? Don't sleep with each other's spouses. It's a real good one, right? Your life, your wife, and your stuff need to be protected, right? Don't sleep with each other's spouses. Again, I would bet that no one in here right now is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse, right? Now, if right now, if your heart's beating real fast and you're like, oh, man, don't go prophetic, no! If that's you, right? Uh, change your life, right? Stop, right? And, and, and actually, don't tell us all about it. Don't drag us into your mess. Just stop doing that, right? But, but here's the thing. I would bet that no one in here right now is, is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse. I would also bet that the reason is not because the Bible says. Because you don't want to bring despair and darkness and pain and horror to people you love, right? Like, if you don't get what I'm saying right now, here's what I want you to do. Um, after this is over, I want you to take your spouse to lunch. I want you to hold them by the hand, and this is what I want you to say. Sweetie, I just need you to know something. I love you. There's no words for how much I, I... Love is not a big enough word for how much I love you. Seriously. It's bigger than you can imagine. But the only reason that I'm not sleeping with everybody else is because, unfortunately, the Bible forbids it. See how your afternoon goes, right? <laughs> we all know that there's a more profound reason to choose life, Right? Then fear of punishment or expectation of reward. Right? Let, let, let's say it this way. Are we more obsessed with direction or distance? Let, let's say, I, I'll keep our primary imagination. A fence-based place obsesses on who's worthy. A well-based place on who's thirsty. A fence-based place on sinning less. A well-based place on loving more. A fence-based place on everything has to be fixed. A well-based place on nothing has to be hidden. A fence-based place obsesses on distance. Here's what that looks like. How far are you from the center? So do you believe what we believe? Can you say our creeds? Can you do our rituals? How, how many fences are you from being, how far are you from the center? A well-based place doesn't do that. A well-based place only asks one question. What direction are your shoulders facing? And how can we facilitate and celebrate your next yes regardless of how far you are from the center? Let me illustrate this with a true story. Um, it was, it's, it's exactly what you're trying to do on tribe night, Right? So if I understood Zelvin properly, uh, tribe night is people are on team, right? You're coming together and you're talking about vision and inspiration. So I was asked to do a tribe night for a gigantic church. Um, it was a Tuesday night meeting. Over 400 people were there. Um, enormous. Anyway, they are very well-based, okay? And, uh, and so part of the night was telling stories. And they had this brilliant thing. They called it Minute to Win It, right? You could, anybody could come up and grab the mic and tell a God story, they saw something do, they saw God do something, but they had to do it in 60 seconds or less. 
And they had a guy with a stopwatch, and if it beeped, they muted the mic, took the mic off of you. And it was something that everybody got into because it kept people from rambling, and it just was a thing. And they're cheering and standing and going crazy. The last guy, before I got up, and I want you to pay very close attention to your heart when I tell you this story. Watch what your spirit does. This guy gets up and says, he's last. He says, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. And I thought, mate, are you not paying attention? You're ruining a party here, right? He said, but I'm a lonely atheist. And and a friend of mine told me that you didn't care whether I was an atheist or not to let me belong to your thing. And so I tried it out. And I came. And sure enough, none of you mind that I don't believe in God to let me be a part of things here. And so by the second week, one of you asked me to be a door greeter. And I said, yes. And so every Sunday, my job is to stand on the door, greet people, and show people where the bathroom is. He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. And I thought, man, this is getting better. And he said, and my story is this. Because of your kindness, I'm going to step back tonight and reconsider God might be real. Well, the place just erupted. And did you notice what happened with you? You see, you hear that, oh, yeah. Like there's something inside of us that says, yes, yes. A well-based place can do that. A fence-based place can't. A fence-based place would go, does he believe our things? And has he done our ritual? And, and what if he died in a donkey? No, no, wait a minute, hang on. Like, his shoulders are facing the right direction and we are here to facilitate and celebrate his next yes. Next slide, let's say it this way. In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we build wells instead of fences? What if we create thirst and provision and prosperity? Let's say it another way. Next slide. Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. See, Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. There was a fence he could have brought up. Actually, there's this verse that disqualified. No, no, no. He's like, if you're thirsty, if you want it, you are in. In other words, we don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. And any fence that makes it more difficult to get to the well, they miss the point. Fences operate correctly when they're caroming us to safety. Which leads me to Jesus. Every year, to this day, Jews everywhere do something that for us non-Jews seems a little strange. Every year. It just ended, by the way. For seven days every year, they choose to live outside in tents. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. This is a caricature. I have a teaching on it, but but, like in 30 seconds, this is basically what they do. Seven days, they choose to live outside in tents. Now, if I said to you, hey, I got an idea. let's, Let's get closer to God by living outside in a tent for seven days, right? Your question would be what? Like, why? Is the Hilton not open? Like, what are you, what are you right? The reason is because they remind themselves every year that they come from ancestry that was homeless, refugee, slaves, wandering the wilderness. And they have a confession that they make. It's in Deuteronomy 26. My father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave. And if God had not interjected himself into my story, I would be a homeless refugee slave. But because God interjected himself into my story, I'm no longer a homeless refugee slave. And here's why they do that. They remind themselves of where they would be had God not interjected himself into their story. 
Because they realize that if we lose sight of that, we'll lose sight of our responsibility in the other person's story. And every year, on the seventh day, in Jerusalem, they have a closing ceremony. Picture tens of thousands of Jews. I have been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Picture tens of thousands of Jews gathering at the temple steps in a closing ceremony. And it's in that context that Jesus says to me a top two or three thing he ever said revolutionary. Here's what he says. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this he was speaking of the spirit. What? Think about how revolutionary that is. Hey, the full spirit of God that you've been taught is relegated to the inner room of the inner room of the inner room of this building behind me is only available to certain people once a year. We're changing the rules. The full spirit of God is available to everybody. And the only requirement is want it. Oh my goodness. I'm gonna reread the passage and I'm gonna add two words and pay attention. This is for effect. I'm definitely adding these two words, okay? Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this he was speaking of the Spirit. Any questions? <laughs> Imagine if Jesus would have done an open Q&A at the Feast of Tabernacles on that statement. Um, what if they're eunuchs? Yep, eunuchs are welcome who want it. Yeah, but we have this verse, I know. I know about the verse. I also know about the verse in Isaiah 56, but I also am teaching people to fulfill scripture instead of being right about it. Eunuchs that want in are welcome. What about Moabites? Yep, I'm 128th Moabite myself. Yep, if you want in and you're a Moabite, you're welcome. Malachites, yep, Sidonites, yep, but we have these verses, I know, but we're gonna fulfill scripture instead of being right, right about it. We can go through all 613 fences or we can just trust me, we're changing the paradigm from who is worth it to who wants it. And anybody who wants it can have the full measure of the Spirit. But I have a rash no one knows about. I know, sir, I know. And please keep that rash to yourself. And please, for the love of God, go get some cream. But if you want what God has, you're more than welcome. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. Like if a sermon can be, well, I love that, I agree with it, so. Or I hated that, I disagree with it, also so. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's wrestle with a few questions. Next slide. When's the last time I saw God do something that made me feel uncomfortable? Like I knew it was God, but I didn't think God operated that way. When's the last time that happened? And I, I would say that if we're not seeing it, it's not because God stopped, it's because we quit paying attention. Or let's say it this way, have I honored a right, wrong, in and out, clean and unclean paradigm over a hungry, thirsty one? Like where have I defaulted to fence-based thinking instead of well-based thinking? Let, let, let's say it this way, am I blaming anybody right now? Instead of taking responsibility and empowering myself, to the level we blame is the level we disempower ourselves for life change. Am I blaming someone? Let's say it another way, next slide. Am I a teachable person? Or, or, like, do I start every day with the idea, I haven't even scratched the surface of my walk with God, and I can't wait for someone to bring something to help me grow? Um, am I a flexible person? Like, if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I to argue? 
But, but the one question, and we can get the musicians back up now. The one question I want us all to wrestle with is this. Are we gonna build deeper wells or higher fences? Kenmore Church has an, you know, look around you for a second. This church is less than two years old. This is unbelievable what God is up to. I already did another service. There's more of you. In the middle of the worst pandemic in a hundred years. And here you are on finals week. <laughs> in a long weekend. Here you are. Amazing. And I can tell you that leaders at the highest level of church in all the movements that I deal with are on board with this message. But here's the problem. Pastors can only lead churches at the pace of the slowest moving cog in the wheel. Don't be that person. May we die to our fence-based thinking and embrace well-based thinking. I bless you, Kenmore Church, to be people obsessed with thirst instead of worth, love instead of sin. Nothing has to be hidden instead of everything has to be fixed. And you obsess with direction instead of distance. Being willing to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes. Creating a thirsty culture of teachability, humility, responsibility, and passion about the infinite possibilities for our world. Lord, would you give us the grace to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. Forgive us for our fence-based thinking. May we embrace the well-based thinking. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for being part of your day. Hope Jesus got bigger for you. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. Scripture's got bigger, not smaller for you today. May we dig deeper wells instead of build higher fences. I can't wait to journey with you tonight. Grace and peace, everybody.